Okay, so Stop Cop City and the Atlanta Forest. Yeah, uh, in the woods of Wilani. So I was there during a week of action. This was back in March. I also was in the woods that week, and I brought my mics and got to talk to some of the people involved with the movement. In terms of intros, they all chose varying degrees of anonymity for reasons I'll get into. I'm a mental health counselor. I'm Kez. I'm a therapist and an abolitionist and an organizer. My name's Oscar. I'm a queer anarchist. I make music. I am headed to law school. I do legal work now. One voice might be familiar from last episode. Gabriel Eisen, lifelong Atlanta resident in the art world and radical political world. To make a very long story short, there's a $90 million facility set to be built in the Wilani Forest in Atlanta. Some call it a police training facility, saying that it will help officers and the fire department provide better care for the city because police morale has been dropping since 2020 and the current facilities are falling apart. Others see it as a spot for further militarization, as it includes shooting ranges, a mock city, so a nightclub, a convenience store, stuff like that for role-playing scenarios. At one point there was going to be an explosive zone, that's been scrapped. It's also attracted criticism because of its location in a predominantly black neighborhood. It is also in one of the countries and the city's last remaining urban forests. There's a lot to be said about its history, including that it's on native land, used to be a prison farm before an ACLU lawsuit, that it was designated to be green space. But suffice to say, it's been the site of a pretty significant protest movement. There's been significant community backlash for years. People are camping out in the forest, going to city council meetings to voice their concerns, filing petitions, posting online, protesting in the streets, much more. An activist, Tort, was killed by Georgia State Troopers in January. Dozens of activists have been arrested, often with little evidence against them, charged with domestic terrorism, no bail, no bonds, still in jail. And yet despite all of that, the resistance keeps growing. I'm interested in why. So let's go back to the forest. This was during an art action event where we put our art on trees to create a living gallery. And it was also a fundraiser to support the people in the movement. Yeah, let's describe it first. <laughs> so we're sitting under a giant banner in the trees that looks like a mural that says Wilani Gallery. And then there's art hanging for an auction. There's some musica in the background. There's screen painted shirts. There's some tents that just happen to be close enough to the gallery. There's some people are staying. And I'm, I guess I'm curious, what else do you see? This is like also mm -hmm. resilience because yeah we almost changed the location, right? Yeah. So What I'm talking about there is the morning of the event, we got word that the police had initiated a raid and were detaining activists. Everyone was torn as to whether or not we should still do our albeit peaceful art event in the forest. Some decided they didn't want to take the risk. Some still went. It was a bit chaotic, but ended up being kind of appropriately low-key. I mean, you were like, no, it's it's important to be yeah. in Wilani. And I had one-on-one -on -one calls with some of the people who have helped me organizing them. We had an open conversation in our kind of thread and realized, like, in this moment, oh, we have different opinions. So if you need to go to the Children's and Family Rally in Brownwood Park, 
go. Those who want to quit, it's important to go to Wilani, you're already there. Let's do that. And you know, we have this whole lay down, bring your pills and blankets set. Four different DJs in the woods, like that set was going to happen here. And those organizers said, we were going to just do it in our backyard. Okay, great. So we'll all meet later in the backyard for that set. This movement and these movements are becoming more decentralized for sure. And that there's room for all kinds of, you know, we had vision for what this was going to be, mm -hmm. and it looks different, but it now looks different in a bunch of different places, and it's beautiful everywhere. From the first piece of pink string that was put up, and I was like, oh, this is not how I thought it was going to go, and there was like, wait, 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 I'm not, when consensus process, let's slow down. Oh, okay, you wanted this, oh, but I went, oh, this works, oh, you know, we do both, and oh, wait, but shift this one so it's not a clothesline in the middle of the woods, right? One of the things that's so powerful about being there was the sense of a united front. And this idea that like, well, we're going to do everything we can. We're going to try every tactic on the table we have to prevent this absolutely like absurd comic book villain-esque police facility from being built in this sacred forest. The fact that there was an embrace of a diversity of tactics, um, that there is an embrace of, you know, we all have the same dream here. We are not going to fracture because of ideological issues, differing approaches and how to get there. There is going to be conflict that we can't resolve, but we are all still trying to head in the same direction. Rapidly exhausting all of the tactics, like we will petition city council, we will stop city council meetings, and if that doesn't work, well, we're going to move on to something else. That sense of unity, I think, is a rare and powerful thing in like an extremely contested activist space. Two of my beings have children, one's a single mother. I absolutely understand that they like can't show up today, right? They could, but that's not okay. Um, and so bringing it to the masses, um, as I love to say, the muggles and the mudbloods, um, but also the witches outside the woods and the people who who are afraid to go in the woods. It's little five points in a land in this gallery venue that's more comfortable because that is a safe enough space, so holding both those. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to note here that the place the police raided that morning was considered a safe property. It was private, used to provide medical support and resources, somewhere people could go when the woods were too dangerous. And although the news would have you believe otherwise, police haven't just been arresting people who are being violent. In the music festival, for example, some people did destroy property, burn construction vehicles, throw fireworks, but others were on the opposite side of the park. I was at the music festival and my partner was flying home that evening. It was a Sunday and they had to get back home in time for work the next day in person. So we had gone and packed up all of their things and then we're walking to the parking lot where we were meeting a friend and they were going to go to the airport together. They did not make it to the airport because when we reached the parking lot, the police were out there. There was like smoke in the air. Um, it became pretty clear that they were arresting people um, on public land, no one doing anything wrong. We weren't able to find the person that we were trying to go to the airport with and learned later that they had been arrested. So I spent a lot of the next week helping with jail support, going out to actions at the jail, trying to get people who shouldn't be in jail out. And one of those was a vigil. And at the vigil, the father of an 18-year-old daughter had flown in unexpectedly from out of state 
and said something along the lines of like, I had no intention of being here, but my daughter is being locked up for being at a music festival in the forest. It was a moment that struck me deeply. He looked and acted like a little bit like my dad would if I were in that situation. In another world, that could have been my parent. It could have been me in jail. And that action was the beginning of a series of vigils at the jail, people turning out with music, with food, to support the folks inside. You could hear people trying to shout down from their cells, trying to communicate with us. We had a megaphone. They were just projecting. We'd do our best to hear them. <laughs> Sometimes it was like song recommendations. Another time, like they uh, lit fire to something and tossed it out the window. Um, it was very deeply moving. And I started to internalize something about like what it means to choose to do this work in a serious way. This movement has done the same thing for me, and I think for a lot of people. They tell us that their job is to keep us safe and to protect us, and yet what I think most people listening to this will honor is that they are making us terrified and incredibly scared to speak up and follow what we call constitutional amendments. Uh, and not just scared, scared of the most deepest thing. What struck me about this set of interviews was how often the words fear and scared were accompanied with some notion of patience and calm. The other powerful thing about Atlanta was the campfires, was the music, was the poetry, was the recognition that like a movement needs a capacity to heal and to care for each other. And without that capacity, we can't win, especially when the other side's tactic is terror and is trying to make us feel afraid and isolated. Like It was extremely moving after the music festival to be able to go back and see a campfire being built and be able to like join a campfire um, and have that sense of camaraderie with strangers, kind of that restoration of like, no, this is a community space. This is our space. This is a public space, and we are going to continue to use it as such, even in the face of cops coming in and terrorizing a music festival and like pointing guns into a bouncy house. yeah. Come on in. Now's the time to to swim. Come on in. The water's warmer than it's ever been. Next to us, a little bit further on in the forest, is where people have been camping out for a long, long time. Almost two years, Rita. We'll get two years here soon. Yeah. (laughs) It just feels very, very calm, like a community and like a quiet kind of strength. There's a fire in the center, putting out some light smoke. There's a Kambalache tent. Over there's a Kambalache art station, food station, water station, which is the idea a Mexican tradition of a no money system and as I love to say it's not a free pile this ain't nothing free somebody bought it and we are putting our lives on the line um, so Kambalache 
to trade, to offer, especially when you have abundance. Um, and I really like what you're saying about being calm. The what we're talking about today is probably not what people are thinking is happening in the woods, right? Focusing on those relationships is what keeps our movement resilient and supporting each other through constant and continuous trauma all the time is what keeps us able to keep going and not give up. Um, and honestly, just really getting comfortable leaning into receiving support. I think that's been really new for a lot of us because we're used to being supporters, calling each other, a lot of family dinners. There's been a lot of wine involved, relying on my friend to go turn my stove off <laughs> for me in the <laughs> middle of my work day. Um, you know, asking like, hey, can you make me dinner tonight? Because I just can't do it. Yeah. That has been that's what this week has looked like. Finding relationships and spaces for those sorts of things can feel very like slow and small and piecemeal until it isn't. I think that those are also crucial in like being able to act. I know that I, for one, would not have been able to move had it not been for my friends and mentors who pushed me not only day of, but also the week prior. Another big thing that stood out in these conversations was how often contradictions came up. For example, the police narrative was that Tort shot first. It got major media attention before it was challenged by an independent autopsy showing that they were sitting with their hands raised in cross-legged position. It was frustrating to many who knew them as a peaceful protester and who, like me, had spoken to them about how much they had advocated for nonviolence. Similarly, the movement as a whole has been largely nonviolent, but the isolated incidents are the ones that get attention. Yes, there have been riots often done in a response. If you murder someone who, is, uh, the autopsy came out today, was actually sitting both hands up. Yeah, exactly. And 13 shots yep. that we are absolutely going to fire back. And you might have used guns and we're going to use fireworks and break windows, let's be real. Maybe we should ask what informed that question. Another one floating around was that the majority of people involved with the movement were outside agitators. Some harped on the fact that they were white, claiming that they had no stake in the community, ignoring that those in the immediate community were at higher risk because of race, and also not acknowledging that this is an issue that affects a lot of people from all over, especially given the precedent it sets and the similarities to other movements. I'm not from Atlanta. It was the first time I had been in Atlanta. Um, but my best friend was from there, and we had both been involved in other ecological, environmental activist struggles. Um, I spent Sundays on hikes with my family uh, up in the Rocky Mountains, which gave me a sense of awe. And then growing up there, I really witnessed how repurposing of land for profit messed with my community and messed with those ecosystems. Now I live in a world where the Colorado River fails half the year. Pretty much everything comes back to land for me in terms of what I care about. As easy as it would have been for everyone to get really angry about these false narratives floating around, it seemed like it was kind of the opposite. This dogmatic acknowledgement of contradictions, both related to this movement. You have to hold both simultaneously and be like, yes, it is really messed up that Tortuguito was murdered by the police 
and it makes me want to spend the foreseeable future doing whatever it takes to stop Crafty from being built. And also recognizing that what actually feels good tends to be like small, close groups of people that support each other, working through conflict in ways that are healthy, pushing back against isolation and lack of time, all the things that, that tend to make daily life suck. And also in their own identities. For example, I'm a white settler, right? That I'm part of a people that racial violence and violence against the land is meant to appease. All these violent and extractive social relations. And so that space of like, I'm not going to act white, and yet I can't just give back my whiteness, is one of those spaces of contradiction where there's a possibility for movement, a possibility of like acting different ways, of starting to repair harm. And it's only when like we acknowledge those contradictions um, that like, all right, yeah, there are two true things here that we can even start to see those gaps and start to fill them. And their jobs. I think a lot of that is like, I am trying to become a lawyer. I'm interacting with a legal system that believes things and acts in a way that I don't agree with. Some of that is as simple as like terminology that is outdated um, or that I believe is harmful and yet, you know, would have to use in a court of law. And the world we live in. Resisting capitalism, resisting settler colonialism, and yet having to live in these capitalist and colonial projects requires us to live contradictions. And it sucks. At the same time, I kind of like contradictions. I feel wholeheartedly that we have to obviously abolish the police and we don't know how to work through conflict and keep each other safe on a social level. We're not going to abolish the police tomorrow and we're not going to learn how to deal with conflict tomorrow and we're working towards both of them all the time. When I notice that I'm able to set a boundary or ask for my needs to be met or tell somebody that something doesn't feel good to me, then that's that's a win towards abolition for me. I'm putting intention into finding like, oh, well, there was another sexual assault and we handled it differently this time because I can see where we learned last time how to do it differently and we're doing it differently now. It even came up in what they were wearing, like a time turner. You might have noticed the Harry Potter reference earlier. And yes, I think that elephant in the room is very relevant. I wouldn't usually wear a J.K. Rowling thing because transphobia, but this <laughs> is a um, being, a trans being, who gave it to me. It's the Hermione spell, and I wear it when I want to be in different places at times. So right now I'm at the child's walk. I'm in someone's backyard, and I'm right here. And Also try to encourage people too to remind themselves that like you're not perfect, nobody's perfect, this movement's not perfect, and you can't expect perfection out of yourself. And so if you, you know, find a pair of shoes that you're completely in love with and obsessed with and they're not eco-friendly, then maybe just buy the shoes and be okay with it and that's okay sometimes too. Yeah, and direct the energy somewhere else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There was uh, this other podcast I was listening to and it was talking about if you spent the four hours that you spent 
researching which was right. the best option with like researching a community group really interested in implementing bike lanes in your mm -hmm. local you know infrastructure then that could be so much so much more helpful so much more grounding yeah just ultimately more effective mm -hmm. yeah. I think that we fall into patterns of really shaming ourselves for little moments of imperfection and we can get really critical and living your values means always coming back to your values it doesn't mean never making a mistake yeah and also not risking shutting down completely and being like well I'm just a shit person right I exactly. bought these shoes so I may as well you know right. not care at all I bought these shoes so I might as well just never buy another eco-friendly thing again for the rest <laughs> yeah, of my life yeah nothing matters <laughs> yeah I think there are like some very specific pieces of mental furniture mental models that really helped me move from a state of like unintentional action to a state of intentional action and I think one of those is this idea of like an act reflect act cycle by existing on land we are affecting the land what is that act and then reflect and then choose a better action um, or choose a different action but it's so easy to get caught up in a well I need to know more before I do something you're already doing something. You are part of whatever system you're trying to analyze. And I think that that, for me, had a real immediate effect on, like, instead of, like, waiting until I know everything, like, realize that, like, actually there's something right now going on. And even if it's small, I can start to adjust the way I'm relating to a thing before I have all the answers, um, because no one's ever going to get to have all the answers. I, as a psychotherapist, know that actually binary thinking or all or nothing thinking, it must be this or it must be this, is actually reactive thinking and it's also childlike thinking because that's how we're trained and our brain can only function as a child. Yes, no, good, bad, right, wrong. And as we develop frontal lobes, we actually have the capacity to hold multiple truths. Even if they're mutually exclusive, and that practice helps reactivity, it helps so much. And the reality is we're just internet explorers looking at a few truths through tabs. We can't actually even fathom the majority of truths that exist. Mm. And every time there's a contradiction in the space between those truths is when we can start to jump from one world into another. In a world where like nothing we do matters to a world where we can have an impact and we can turn these dreams we have about what the future could look like into a reality. And I think this is something that conservatives are very good at of instead of working from like a, a space of ideological purity they will do whatever they can to make the future a little more like the world they want to see whether the law is imperfect whether the precedent isn't there they will take the action that puts them a little closer on that path and i think anarchists really argue for this if we want a future, we have to start acting like it exists now um, or that it's going to exist. A lot of this is just like screw perfection, that like point on the horizon that you want to get to, start acting like it already exists. Start building as if it's already there or could be built tomorrow. That sort of commitment to winning is one of the powerful things about the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement. It was always built around this vision that Cop City wouldn't be built, that the forest would continue, um, that instead we would grow a food forest. We'd make sure that this is public land available to everyone. We would lead tours. And I think that that is really at the heart of why the fight in Atlanta was so compelling for me, why it brought so many folks from out of state, why it's been fought so hard, why it's drawn such an unmoored from reality reaction from the police, because it's a threat 
to the future that the police assumes would exist. Moving back to care. You know, it doesn't matter if you have a perfect analysis of capitalism or if you have learned how to do medic training or if you know how to grow food. Like, you can have all the skills in the world, but if you aren't able to offer them, it's as if you don't have those things in the first place. It's actually a whole other skill set, avoiding burnout or building sustainability, which looks like saying no to a lot of things, which looks like not responding to every crisis with your all, which looks like zooming out to a big picture and saying, I'm not going to do this so that I can do that. I think an example is this week of action that we just experienced where I knew going into it, it would be incredibly overwhelming for me personally, but I also knew that I would have a lot potentially to offer being around the Defend the Forest movement, having uh, housing nearby that could be a resource for people, a broad network and so on. But I also knew that if I tried to attend every single event and have this kind of short term, I'm going to give all I got until I got nothing left relationship to the week, I would actually wind up not being able to offer any of those things. So, you know, it's a work in progress, but I did try to only go to the things that I felt I had the energy for. And then when, when there was a moment of crisis this week, it worked. Like I had a lot to offer. I was able to offer people to come to my space, offer emotional support to people who were feeling terrified of the police, understandably. And in, in similar moments in the past, I haven't. But I do think that that's, that's something that really has to be a daily practice because it's so hard not to either, you know, become completely disillusioned on the one hand or just like get in cycles of giving all of yourself being exhausted and disillusioned back and forth. The people I admire most are people who like are pretty consistent and they give what they can. They know how to have boundaries and all those good things that they talk about on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Something that makes abolition and activism sustainable to me is that I just have to give space to myself to be disillusioned sometimes, to feel really jaded, to feel kind of hopeless and let myself sink in that and just know that that's part of the process and I don't have to stay there, but it is an important part of the process and I can't just repress those feelings. Yeah, exactly. If I give myself that space, then it dissolves much quicker and I'm also able to see kind of the silver lining or the solutions or the whatever lesson and it's usually a really important lesson. It can be informative, right? Mm -hmm. The stuff that gets you the most disillusioned usually is where there are points of tension that could be yeah. worked out. In each moment I ask, what do I need? Oh, do I need rest? Okay, how do I create a, I'll light a candle, make the pillow for it. What do I need right here now, right? Mm -hmm. Tapping into states of flow, and that can mean different things all day, cooking, art making, texting, activism, laying in bed with a lot of pillows and watching a, you know, maybe a movie like Pinocchio where there's a, being made of the heart of a tree, but yet is carved by the father to be a boy and struggling to wonder whether they're a real boy or a tree. I think that often people and um, especially activists can get really caught up in what they think they're supposed to do or what's necessary. Are other people going to think this is the right thing to do? Yeah. I'm worrying about our reputation or, um, you know, feeling really ashamed of this action or that action. And I think that there are 
some things that are more glamorous and sexy that people want to do but that just don't feel right in their bodies and so that's the question that I often find myself coming back to is how does this align with my values and my ultimate goals what are our visions what do you see what do you not what are you told what do you in your own meaning and truth see for the force see for the movement see for the future see for the possibility of cops and then be vocal say it you know and even if you need to be anonymous create an anonymous email write on a piece of paper like there's ways to disseminate information that no one will know who it is and if you're scared to use your voice there's something called money it's called green tree right put it where you need it to go when we're talking about action, it's really easy to forget that we are making choices and doing things every day. The question of like, all right, why do you have space or time to, instead of doing these like draining everyday tasks, be a community organizer? Um, like who gave you the space and time so that you could start like going to city council meetings um, so that you could take a week to go be in a forest? Um, have conversations with your neighbors, cook things, share food with your neighbors. You know, where do we locate ourselves in a system so that we have some time to change it? And it's not easy for anyone. It's much harder if you're poor, but I think it's possible to find those spaces. Choosing a job, even if a job you like a little less that gives you a little more time after work. If someone was having an emergency and needed to crash in my place for a while, I could help them. I could be there for that like big sudden thing nurturing relationships a little bit, trying to find like-minded friends, do sort of like visioning work of like, what kind of world would you want to see with people around you? Taking small actions to create an environment where big things could change. What happens tomorrow is gonna be the consequences of choices people made today and yesterday and in 2003 and in like 1643. It's just an accumulation of moments, and we need to start adding to that pile of moments that look like the future we want, even if they're imperfect. It's 1 p.m. Was gonna be a good day, damn it. I really needed today to be good. Had a long night, not a night I couldn't handle, never been a night I didn't get through if you do want to get involved a good place to start is the Stop Cop City Instagram or website you can obviously reach out to me and even if you just listened out of curiosity or you were using it as an allegory for whatever problem you're working through I think it's worth following with a hefty dose of media literacy. All the music in this episode, besides the first one, which was Manta Raybrin, is actually from Oscar. He's a musician and was kind enough to lend me some of his demos. He says the best place to direct you to is at odd.buck on Instagram, or if you're listening to this a week from now, his website, oddbuck.com, which he is sitting on, but will be updating soon. It's just one more disaster. By now you know what to do.
Thanks to everyone who was willing to have a conversation with me in the woods and outside of them and who makes up my little network of care. Until next time. It's 1 p.m. It's gonna be a good day. I really needed today to be good.